Hello, my name is Peter Jardim-White, and I'm a drama teacher here at Wellingborough School. For many people, the school play is a cornerstone of their most rich and vivid childhood memories. Whether or not a relationship with the performing arts continues into adulthood, it's hard to forget the butterflies, the shaky knees, the thrill of performing for friends, family and teachers. What you're about to hear is a very different kind of school play. An audio play, the first in a series of six, created by our Key Stage 3 Drama Club. Though they aren't about to step out onto wooden boards under brilliant hot lights, I know these students will be feeling the same anticipation, knowing that their art is about to meet its audience. Under the guidance of myself and my colleagues Rebecca Lamberton and Hanali Mystery, this fantastic cast of voice actors and Foley artists have created something which I think is truly magical. I hope you enjoy it. To the penultimate episode of Wellingburian Gothic, a series of chilling audio plays for the festive season presented by Wellingborough School's Key Stage 3 Drama Club. Congratulations for making it this far through our collection of ghoulish winter tales. I hope you are sitting comfortably, somewhere cosy and warm, in preparation for, perhaps, our most diabolical episode yet. This is our performance of The Ghost of the Crossroads, adapted from the short story by Frederick Manley, which was first published in 1893. Night, and especially Christmas night, is the best time to listen to a ghost story. Most especially when you sit in the midst of friends before a roaring fire, with a sparkling punch in your hand, listening to the storm that rattles the windows and doors and hurls the snow down the broad chimney, hissing into the fire, as if it hated to see you so snug and was determined to extinguish the cheerful blaze. It is then that your mind wanders over Dolores, windswept moorland, trudges along the bleak path on the hillside, struggles with the storm on the highway where every white-robed tree is a phantom and every rock a hiding place of robbers and hideous somethings that await your approach. But... For now, you are safe. Throw on the logs, draw the curtains, move your chairs nearer the fire and hearken. It was on just such a stormy night that a little group sat in the snug parlour of Andy Sweeney's homestead, that wild Christmas of 1843, when Mrs Sweeney went to the window and drew the snow-white curtains very close, remarking at the same time, God shelter all poor travellers. The group responded, their voices joined in one deep, fervent, Amen, and huddled together in the brave glow of the turf fire. The general sentiment of the party was published by a dapper, red-haired little fellow named Reddy, who said, in a rich voice, We should be thanking God for this comfort, not forgetting Mrs Sweeney. Although the Sweeneys were known the county over for their hospitality, on this particular night they outdid all their previous efforts at entertaining. The oak table in the middle of the floor was covered from end to end with good things. Hills of potatoes, all in their coats, on account of the severe weather. Lakes of soup, 
Mountains of roast beef, with goose and turkey in the valleys between. Pigeons imprisoned in cells of pastry. Mounds of bread and butter, the whole pie family, from plebeian apple to rich Mrs. Mince, were there in their crusty suits. The table mumbled and groaned, but who cared for the table's sorrows? In truth, who could think of anything but gladness in that home of light and joy on that frozen night? Outside, the storm raged. The country around, a bleak stretch of moorland, was buried deep in snow. The signpost at the four crossroads, a most commonplace affair in clear weather, was now a terrible monster with four hideous arms. All traces of the road were lost. How the storm seemed to hate Andy Sweeney's snug home and the cheerful light shining from the windows, throwing a golden pathway into the night. More turf for the fire. Everyone has a glass of steaming punch in his hand. Everyone's face is lighted with love and radiant with joy. Everyone toasts, everyone sings merry songs, and dances with his sweetheart. In short, there was never a happier home. There was never such music and such punch as Mrs. Sweeney's, nor jollier souls to drink it. The floor had just been cleared for dancing, and the fun was at its height, when out in the storm, seeming far away, there rose a cry. A terrible cry, a cry that spoke the anguish of a soul. Those within fell silent and listened with blanched faces. God save us! What was that? It was the banshee's cry. At this suggestion, the children ran to their mothers and buried their little heads. Wives clung to their husbands, sweethearts to their sturdy lovers, and all waited anxiously for a repetition of the cry. Then, something happened which caused all hearts to stand still, and sent the cold blood rushing down the back. Help, please! It was a human voice calling aloud for help. Soon after, the crunch of flying feet was heard, that came nearer and nearer. Open the door! Fling it wide! Storm rushed in and scattered the turf and tore pictures from their places. But no one cared, no one noticed. All eyes were watching a man who came flying towards the house. The moon peeped at intervals through the storm-rift clouds, casting a ghostly light, and now it shone down upon this figure that sped to the door and crying, Please save me! until he dashed across the threshold and fell prone upon the sanded floor. Andy Sweeney turned quickly to the door and, listening, peered long and searchingly into the darkness. Who's there? The only answer was the soughing of the wind across the moor, and a gruesome answer it was. Who's there? No one's there. Shut the door and be easy. Andy cast a rueful, backward glance at the door as Mrs Sweeney led him away from it. Look at this poor man. The young man who had interrupted the festivities was already unconscious before the fire, though before too long his eyes fluttered open. Where am I? Here you are, sir. Safe and sound. You're with friends, lad. Let's get you settled in a chair. The young man trembled violently as he moved with livid face to the chair which Andy had placed near the fire for him. The party stood at a respectful distance from the young man, regarding him with looks of half fear, half wonder. As the moments passed, he seemed to grow stronger, and presently he raised his head from his breast, in which position he had been gazing intently at the fire. Does anyone believe in ghosts? Ghosts, Your Honour? Ghosts. We do, Your Honour. Remember Mary Doolan's mother? Lord rest her, dead and gone, ten years come next Ash Wednesday. As fine a woman as ever put foot to leather. As I've often said, and always will say, please God, didn't Mary Doolan, rest her soul, meet a ghost at the crossroads? At the crossroads, did you say? Ten years come Ash Wednesday. There was a milestone nearby. A flat milestone. Like a gravestone. The same place, sir. Which of you is the landlord of this place? There's no landlord here. 
This is my home. These are my friends and neighbours. Will you give me a bird? I'll see that you're paid for it. You are welcome to stay at my place, sir, without money. I don't want that. Not on Christmas night. Christmas? Of course. What else? Here, have some punch. The young man accepted the steaming glass and, as he sipped it, the whole party was relieved to see some colour returning to the stranger's cheeks. For a moment, all hearts were warm again and it seemed the holiday celebrations were set to continue until the old woman, the friend of Mary Julian's mother, seated herself next to the young visitor. Did you see a ghost tonight, sir? Leave the boy alone, Lottie. I'm not offended, but I hardly know how to answer. Who was it that chased you when you came running here? Screaming for help? Something in black. How did it come to happen? You must pardon the question, sir, but as this is Christmas night, and knowing it is a time for great freedom, I thought you might be good enough to tell us about it, sir. It's all very strange, to be sure. I will tell you what happened. At these words, which promised the glorious entertainment always to be had from a ghost story, Andy Sweeney's guests all gathered around the fire and awaited the stranger's story with breathless interest. I may presume that you all know Squire Goodfellow? We do. Long life to his honour. Well, I was returning from his house to the inn at the village, where, at present, I am staying. The squire, who, as you all well know, is a downright good gentleman, endeavoured to dissuade me from going home a foot in the storm, and invited me to sleep under his roof until morning. I, knowing he already had as many guests as his place could hold with comfort, thanked him for his kind offer and started out for the inn. I need not remind you of the weather. Suffice it to say that the snow was blown into my eyes until it blinded me, and I wandered from the road. My fingers were stiff and frozen, so that I found it impossible to hold my cloak about me. I could not see an arm's length before me. The snow fell so thick and fast, the night was so dark, my eyes were growing heavy, I felt sleepy. But, knowing to lie down in the treacherous snow meant death, I made one last mighty effort and struggled on. At length I got so weak I could only stumble forward, and three or four, maybe ten times I fell. Then I cried out for help, cried, screamed, yelled, as I never did before. How lonely, how awfully grave-like the stillness was. My very voice seemed muffled. Fool, why did you venture it? What would I give to be back at the squire's? All, everything, anything to be saved, anything. I'll save you. My good friends, the voice that uttered these words was so close to my ear that it seemed a whisper from another land, and I thought I was already dead. I'll save you. His voice sent a shiver, not like that produced by cold, through my frame, so that I was afraid to meet his gaze, which I know I can't tell you how, was fastened on me, and pierced me through and through. Without venturing to meet his eye, I said, Who are you? One who will save you. Are you a farmer hereabouts? Look and see. Though I had no desire to do so, and despite my efforts to do otherwise, I felt myself turning to meet him. Shall I ever forget his eyes? Shall I ever forget the devilish leer on his face? Never, though I lived to be a thousand years old, he was a very tall, thin, middle-aged man, dressed in all black. Do I resemble a farmer? I dared not speak. I could not speak. 
The place, the hour, the solitude, his sudden appearance, cast a sort of spell over me. And it was only by putting forth all my remaining strength that I had the heart to ask him to put me on the right path for home. I will do so with pleasure. I thanked him for his kindness and off we started. He was so very affable and before long I came to look upon him with less distaste. Before we reached the crossroads we were speaking of the many ways men have of amusing themselves and I confess that I was partial to card playing as a pastime. He assured me it was his greatest pleasure. Eventually we came to a weird looking post which stands at the crossroads, pointing its long fingers in every direction in a most confusing manner. From that point, my road was clear. I held out my hand to say goodbye, saying, A thousand thanks for your timely assistance, a safe journey, and goodbye. He did not seem to notice my outstretched hand, but looked into my face with a steady, fascinating stare, for all the world like a snake trying to fix its prey. I tried to keep my voice from quivering as I spoke again. We may never see each other again. Oh, we shall surely meet once more. Where thou shalt be neither snow, nor frost, wind, nor rain. Do you really wish to thank me for whatever small service I have been to you? If it be in my power to do so. The simplest thing in the world. What is it? Do you see this milestone? You can thank me by sitting down facing me on that stone and appeasing a craving, a hunger, which tortures me. By this time... As you may well suppose, I had grown very suspicious and feeling certain that I had fallen in with a highwayman whose dark purpose was to murder me for my money and jewellery. I determined to act with great circumspection to humour his every will until a suitable opportunity of escape presented itself. Accordingly, I sat down on one end of the wet slab. His grim words, appeasing a craving, a hunger kept me from being at all cheerful, for I anticipated being eaten alive. I put the best face I could on the matter, assuring myself that it was better to die fighting than to sit down and calmly consent to be metamorphosed into a midnight supper for the pleasure of the gentleman in black. I will play you a few games of forty-fives at a sovereign a game before we part. Is this the craving you spoke of? The hunger you must satisfy? This is the first tool with which I worked my own ruin. Since I first had being, I have craved to win for myself all things which belong to others. The spirit of gaming was made part of me. It has grown with me, gained strength with years. Until now, it is all I live for. I have money. On the way here, you confessed a love of cards. Come. We will play. The stranger produced a pack of cards from within his cloak, and there, on the wet milestone in the dark night, with the storm raging around us, we began to play forty pies for a sovereign a corner. My nature seemed to have undergone some startling change, for I thought of nothing and forgot everything. My late suffering, the desolate place, the hour, the cold that had but lately been turning my fingers to stone, my mysterious companion, all save that there was a small heap of gold near the stranger, two golden coins in the middle of the slab, and that I was to gamble and win. I won the first game, the second two, and the third I was also successful. 
Luck continued to be with me, and I quickly transferred the heap of gold to my corner of the slab. Up to this, neither of us had spoken, but when I had taken all but a few pieces from him, he remarked, You play a shrewd game. Thank you, sir. But then my luck began to change. I lost repeatedly, and when we had played several hands, he succeeded in getting the gold back to his end, with five pounds of mine along with it. We played for half crowns, then for shillings, then for sixpences, and at last I had only a few coppers at stake. The cards were given out eagerly at grass mine with the hope of holding the better hand. Alas, it was worthless. He won. Every farthing of £200 was gone, and I was constrained to tell him I could play no longer. But the game is young. Yes, but my last penny is lost. There's nothing left. Then I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm anything but a bad man. So I'll give you a chance of getting your money back. You will? I will. What would you say if I were to wager all I have here, every penny we have gambled and many more, that I will be the victor of two games out of three? You'd be very magnanimous, but I have absolutely nothing left. You have your word. What do you mean? I mean that if you will pledge me your word to serve me hereafter, at any time I may chance to call upon you, I will wager my gold against your word. If I lose, the gold is yours, all of it, every bright sovereign, and you may take back your vow too. As he spoke, he leaned forward, took the gold in his hand, and let it slip through his fingers, a sheeny, clinking stream. I did not hesitate to consider the import of his dreadful propositions, but I felt I must have the gold, not for its own sake, not because I am avaricious, simply because I hungered to gamble. Repeat these words after me. I swear to be the servant of this man from this hour unto the end of time, to, to renounce, renounce all, all other masters. Other masters. And to serve him faithfully and well in all that he may command. I could hardly wait for him to finish. So eager was I to resume the play. Once more, we seated ourselves on the milestone. Again, the cards were dealt out. And the strangest game that ever man played was begun. I won on the first hand. Cards came round a second time. He won. A game for each. Then, I prepared myself for the last. Victory meant riches and freedom. Defeat, I know not what. My brain was on fire. My hands trembled so that in picking up the cards he had placed near me, the cards which were to decide for or against me, they fell out of my shaken fingers and dropped on the snow at my feet. My good people, when just as my fingers were about to fasten on the cards, my eyes saw something that caused my blood to turn as cold as the snow on the ground. Something that took from me the power to move, to speak, that petrified me and left me gazing at it like a statue. Think of being alone with that man out on the snow, away from all help, in a place seemingly deserted by its maker, and shudder to dream of what I saw. Before me, with the spectral light of the winter moon shining right down upon it, What's a cloven hoof? A cloven hoof? The devil! I closed my eyes, thinking I was dreaming. But no, for when I opened them, 
There's the cursed hoof before me. Lord save us. Then the awfulness of the compact I had made came to my mind with terrible force. I was bartering my soul for gold. Now I see that providence watched over me, for it was the thought of what I was doing that caused me to leap to my feet with a cry for help and run, with feet winged with fear away from that thing. Every moment I expected to feel his hand on my shoulder, to be dragged back to that hellish game of cards at which my soul would be lost to it, to the thing in black. You must have heard my screams, for as I ran, I saw a stream of glorious light burst in the blackness. It gave new courage to my heart and new strength to my limbs. After that, I remembered nothing. I suppose I became unconscious. The rest, you already know. And believe me when I say it, I cannot easily forget your prompt assistance and your heartfelt sympathy. With the stranger's adventure and all this hideous details fresh within the mind of every man, woman and child present, the very idea of leaving that hospitable roof was thrilling in itself. So motherly Mrs Sweeney found resting places for the women and children, while the men slept on improvised beds of chairs and tables, the greater part of them lying on the floor before the fire. The young man retired shortly after he had concluded his story, and it was not long until the Sweeney household was asleep and snoring. If you doubt any part of this narrative, you may visit Mrs Sweeney and have it from her lips. There were some cynics who said that the young man had been drinking freely at the squire's and had lost considerable money at playing cards, had rested on the milestone and dreamed about the man in black, and that the only devil he saw was a creature of his drunken fancy. But Mrs Sweeney and her guests maintained that, had he been intoxicated, the gentleman could not have related his adventure and described it in such hideous detail. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wellingburian Gothic. Our version of The Ghost of the Crossroads was adapted from the short story by Frederick Manley. The narrator was played by Molly. Mrs Sweeney was played by Phoebe. Reddy was played by Izzy. Andy was played by Levi. Lewis was played by Olivia. The young man was played by Jeff. Lottie was played by Nena. And the devil was played by Alfie. Our theme music was composed and produced by Tommy. And our artwork was curated by Adam, Ellie... Ella, Josh, Georgina, Molly and Thomas. This episode of Wellingburian Gothic was directed and produced by Mr White, Mrs Lamberton and Miss Mystery, with assistance from Max. And I, of course, am your host, Georgina. If we have not yet frightened you away, I hope you will join us next week for our final chilling tale.